This is episode number thirteen with Reed Burney. Coming up, and then when I took my clothes off in rehearsal and I didn't die, I thought, "Well, let's go, let's do this thing." You start to feel crazy because you think I'm pretty good, but nobody else seems to get it. And I think there was a point if they had. Done the play and not cast me, I would have killed myself. I was so, I had transferred so deeply. I wish I wasn't in despair for most of my twenties and thirties and forties. That's a goddamn shame. How can I ever complain about my career again if I turn something down? Because it scared me. When they put the bra on me, I almost fainted. It was so heady. And I said, I'm not going to Alaska. Hey there, my name is Nathan Agin, and this is the Working Actors Journey, bringing you in-depth conversations with actors that have been working professionally for decades. Hope you're doing well out there. We are back for season two with some wonderful conversations, and if you're just joining us, we have a number of fantastic episodes where working actors share where they've been, how they do it, and what they've learned along the way. Actors who have been putting in the work day in, day out, and who have certainly had their ups and downs like everyone else. These conversations are meant to inspire and reassure you on your journey that you're not alone, you're not crazy, and though the road may be long and challenging, there are rewards ahead. And I really want to help you as an actor out there. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss anything ahead, and visit the website workingactorsjourney.com, where you can get a copy of the guide "Twelve Top Acting Tips from Season One." These are some of the best ideas taken from all the episodes compiled in one place, and it's waiting for you. There's also a link in the episode description. Today on the show is Reed Burney, an actor and teacher who himself has had a long and winding road, and only in recent years feels like he found traction in his career, including a Tony Award for his work in The Humans after decades of struggle. And just to show how random life can be, I connected with Reed because he is the uncle to my brother's fiance. After seeing him in The Humans in Los Angeles, the four of us were able to meet up that evening and chat a little bit. He was so warm and funny and forthcoming about his career that a few weeks later, I reached out and asked if he'd be a guest. And luckily, he said yes. So, in terms of guests, sometimes I work with people, sometimes I cold email, and sometimes, like this, there's a random wonderful connection. In today's episode, Reed and I cover being nude on stage and screen, having a minister for a father, decades of anger and sadness, obsessions, wearing women's clothing, being a schmuck, traveling the world, and a lot more. Now, Reed and I started off talking about a couple recent projects he's doing, and one has a non-disclosure agreement. So you won't hear exactly what it is, but it's something that will be released in the near future. Even though you won't know the specific project, I think you can still follow the conversation pretty well. What I loved about this chat with Reed and why I was excited to talk with him is that he is very open and honest that it has not been an easy road for him. That he did wish things were different, 
As he said himself in his Tony acceptance speech, The last thing I want to say is I've been an actor for almost 42 years, which I cannot believe I'm saying, but 35 of them were pretty bad, and (laughs) that's a lot of them. I just couldn't get anything going. So the last eight have been great. Having great mentors and access to outstanding teachers can make the difference in your career. But what if you can't find these people? Where do you go? That's what this show is hoping to do, to connect you with actors that could change your life and make your acting journey easier and more satisfying. And if you'd like to get exclusive access to additional episodes, bonus content, discounts, and items that are available nowhere else, I invite you to become a premium member of The Working Actor's Journey, starting at just $2 per month. Consider this the most inexpensive and possibly most valuable acting class you'll ever take. So here's a bit more about Reed's career. Reed won the Tony Award and Drama Desk Award for his role in The Humans. He was also nominated for a Tony Award and won the Drama Desk Award for his work in Casa Valentina. He is the recipient of a special honorary Obie Award in 2006 for Sustained Excellence of Performance, and he received a special Drama Desk Award in 2011 for his versatile and finely nuanced performances over the past 35 years, and for his exceptional work that particular season in three different plays. He also received Obie Awards for his performances in Annie Baker's Circle Mirror Transformation and Tracy Letts' Bug. Reed has shared the stage with Ellen Burstyn and Brian Cranston, and he has over 75 film and TV credits, including Clint Eastwood's Changeling, playing Vice President Donald Blythe on House of Cards, as Patti Lapone's husband on Girls, and on the show The Blacklist. He attended Boston University and studied in classes sponsored by the National Academy of Television Arts and Sciences. Reed has taught acting at Columbia University and the Scott Freeman Studio in New York. He is married to actress Constance Shulman, who appears on Netflix's Orange is the New Black, and they have two children, Ephraim and Gus, who are also both actors. Now, when we spoke, Reed was just getting ready to head off to perform The Humans at London's Hampstead Theatre, which actually finishes up this week, October 13th. So if you're in the area, grab tickets. You will not be disappointed. It's the original New York cast, which I saw in Los Angeles, and it is such an engaging and intriguing show. Are you looking for more info from industry insiders and great teachers about being an actor? And do you want this as something you can listen to on the go? Well, you're in luck. As a listener of the Working Actors Journey podcast, Audible is offering you a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Whether it's one hour or 15 hours, it doesn't matter. Whatever you want, that first item is totally free. To download your audiobook today, go to workingactorsjourney.com slash audible. Here are a few recommendations for your acting journey. The Actor's Life by Jenna Fisher from The Office, read by the author and others, including our guest, Reed Burney. Secrets of Screen Acting by Patrick Tucker, a TV and film director, read by David Lawrence the Seventeenth. Respect for Acting by Uta Hagen, read by Angel Masters.
Get one of these or anything else at workingactorsjourney.com slash audible. Again, really quickly, we couldn't disclose the project we're talking about at the beginning, but it's something that will be released in the near future. You didn't miss anything. Just hang in there. So here we go with episode number 13. Please enjoy my chat with Reed Burney. It was kind of written for me, I guess. They said it was. Um, But I think it was the best part I've ever had in a movie or a thing. It's only half hour. But uh, it was amazing. So it was really fun uh, doing the nude stuff. I've taken my clothes off a lot in plays, but I've never done it like that in a film. Right. And uh, didn't, didn't really feel anything while I was doing it. It was wild just to be standing in the Park Lane Hotel completely naked and a crew of 50 men and women standing around. But then every day afterwards, I have been blushing and mortified and thinking, oh, my poor children. And <laughs> everybody I know watches this show. And oh, yeah, yeah. I was reading, was it blasted that you just decided, like, I have to, I can't wait until, you know, tech or, or, or the first show. Yes, that's right. That's and- right. I did it on the third day of rehearsal and I just... Because I thought, it's so scary, and it's only going to get scarier, and um, let's just get it out of the way. And then when I took my clothes off in rehearsal and I didn't die, I thought, well, <laughs> all right, let's go. Let's do right, this thing. Right, right, right. Really interesting. But the film thing, and I'm 10 years older than that, and, you know, it's not supposed to be pretty. Can I say that? <laughs> they didn't write it in there to be hot and sexy. They wrote it in there because it's going to be hilarious, if anything. So, right. right. And they said you can wear underwear if you want. It's not a deal breaker. And I looked at it and I thought, it's not as funny if I'm in underwear. Mm. It's just not as funny. Well, I mean, it's, it's nice that you can have that objectivity or disassociation and see see the part separate from you playing the part and, and get right. too wrapped up into, well, how am I going to come across and what is this going to mean for me and all that kind of stuff? Well, that's all my, you know, actor vanity, which, you know, is poison. Um, but I was thinking, you know, when Army Hammer did Call Me By Your Name, there was all this stuff written into his contract, about frontal nudity and no any of this or that. And I thought, well, maybe he knows something I don't know hmm. about how to do this. <laughs> but, you know, he's 30 and right. tall and handsome, and I'm not. So <laughs> so it's a very different situation, I think. Because his would, you know, he his would have been all over the Internet as some kind of meme. And sure. you know, I think mine, mine won't be. Mine will be people which be changing the channel all over the world. Well, and and as you were talking about it, and I think it was in conjunction with what I was reading that you know you were saying at least in the blasted experience, it's a very it can be a very freeing experience just to kind of to to do it and see like oh I I'm not going to die. It you know of course yeah. you have to make those choices of you know does this artistically serve the story and is it necessary and and right all that well, right. all those kinds of things are just gratuitous. Um, but, uh, but yeah, and I can only imagine, you know, your fellow crew and cast are all supportive. They all, you know, they all understand psychologically what it takes to get to this point. 
Yeah, and they they kept running up to me with the bathrobe, and finally I was like, oh, just forget it. <laughs> Who cares at this point? You've seen everything you could possibly see, so, yeah. you know, that's fine. But uh I noticed that nobody said, would you like us to clear the set or any <laughs> of that stuff. There was just everybody was just standing there doing their job. and No, no offer for a closed set for Reed Bernie, huh? No, <laughs> it didn't occur to anybody. Anyway, well, I wanted to I mean, there's so many things we we could, you know, just start talking about. But I wanted to jump back to uh, where you uh, were were raised and grew up. And uh, that was in Virginia, right? Well, I was born in in Alexandria, Virginia, but I I um, was mostly raised till about. uh, Well, we moved. I was in Seaford, Delaware, which is in the southern part of Delaware, a little tiny town that I, I call my little rascal years. Mm. And we moved from there when I was seven up to Kennett Square, Pennsylvania, which is right over the Delaware line. And I was there for two or three years. And then we moved into Wilmington, Delaware. So I moved to Buffalo after ninth grade. But so I really tell people I'm from Delaware. Okay. Um, yeah. And not many people have met people from Delaware. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. A lot of us don't leave. Joe Biden, of course, is the highest profile Delawarean. Yep that there is but um it's a little bit of the midwest on the east coast it's quiet and it's a lovely lovely state stuck in the middle of the northeastern gulag mm-hmm. and uh what did, what did your parents do my dad was an episcopal minister so when i we were first moved to seaford he had his own parish and then uh after we left seaford and moved up to Kennet, he was uh, assisting various bishops so he became more of an administrator. And then in high school, when we were up in Buffalo, he got a parish again. So mostly he was uh, a kind of a nine to five uh, administrative type. And, and do you feel like that, uh, the, the minister, you know, aspect of his life, how, how do you feel like that influenced you? Well, in terms of my life, I feel like even though I don't go to church, I feel like I have a fairly strong spiritual fabric. He was a deeply empathic and uh, sensitive man. And I, I feel like that, that all of that sort of world, that gestalt of my father very much impacted on who I am. And I, and I imagine as a result impacted my work in a great deal too, in terms of the thinking about how the other person's feeling and, um, you know, what, what is the other person's experience? And, you know, um, was he, cause I guess it could have been right for the time. Was he a fire and brimstone kind of a uh, speaker? Not or, really. Yeah. No, he was a very, he was a really sort of Atticus Finch type of guy. Okay. And, uh, very low key. I, I do remember when I saw him preach, when he would occasionally sub at a church or even remembering him when I was little and he had his own church, that he had a different persona, if you will, mm-hmm. when he was in the pulpit. There was a, a, a performative aspect to him. You know, he spoke with uh, a louder supported tone and uh, um, slightly more formally than than he did at home. And and. I remember being a very, very aware of the dichotomy of the public persona and the private persona. And was there something about that 
kind of performance that you were drawn to or interested in, or, or you were just kind of observing at that age? I was aware of it. And, and honestly, I would, I felt slightly embarrassed by it because it was, sure. like, well, that's not, that's not who my dad is. He's not that guy. Um, I, I don't think that's where my acting bug came mm-hmm. from. My memory of it is because I, I you, you may have found this in your research, but I always wanted to be an actor. I remember being about five and speaking to a group of grown-ups about it and saying I wanted to be an actor. I believe that the penny dropped for me. I was at the movies and I was seeing, I'm pretty sure this is right, the, the 1962 remake of Thief of Baghdad. It was either that or Wonders of Aladdin with Donald O'Connor. But it, it was some fantastical adventure movie mm-hmm. for kids. And I remember having the realization, oh, you can do that for a living. You can that you can do that as your career. Um and from then on it was it was pretty straight forward with that. I really geared my whole life and school and everything towards one day I'm going to be an actor. And was, uh, was your mom a housewife or did she have a career as well? Mom was a housewife. She had gone to Bennington mm-hmm. and dropped out to marry my dad in 1948. And, but she had been a theater major at Bennington. Oh, okay. I think mostly cause it was easy. I think she <laughs> thought she could just put on plays. I don't think she had any real aspirations towards a professional career and um she loved going to the movies that was a a big deal for her um but uh i don't think she really had a very sophisticated uh, sense of it all uh, in terms of theater i think it was pretty much let's put on a play and have fun right right I saw her in a community theater play mm-hmm. when I was about six or seven. She did a melodrama at the high school with the theater group. And it was called, I think, Pure as the Driven Snow. And she played the maid and she died at one point. She was found in a closet. They opened the closet door and she fell out dead. And I remember her sitting us down and explaining that she wasn't really dead and she was, you know, doing the play. But I remember going backstage and seeing everybody with their makeup on and they all had those big red dots in the corners of their eyes, which somebody thought was a necessary thing for makes your eyes pop or something. Right, right. They seem very exotic. Yeah. It it sounds like there's the possibility then that your parents were both supportive of your idea of being an actor. They were. Um, I think, I, I, I think my dad very much was for all of us. There were five of us. Do what makes you happy. Follow your bliss before that was an expression. And, mm-hmm. uh, I just want you to do what fulfills you. I think my mother was worried about me being an actor. Um, because I think she knew it was hard. And I think she thought people would think things about me as a young actor, does that mean he's gay? Does that mean mm. he's a bum? Does that, what does that mean? Uh, because I think her, like a lot of people, the, the only, either you're a big star on the Tonight Show 
or you're a bum. Hmm. So I, I think she was worried. And for most of my um, life when she was alive, I was 36 when she died, uh, and really struggling with, with my career, I would call home and she would say, don't you want to go back to school? Don't you want to take French? Or I don't know why she thought French would be better than acting, but, but don't, why, don't you, why don't you go back to school and, and, and give this up? And I think at that point it was because she just saw how hard it was and how sad it was making me. And it it, it is so challenging because you, you and you know you can speak to this you know certainly better than I can. But you know when when you're in those uh, very challenging times, and yet it's still something you want to do. How how are you able to explain that to somebody else, or can you explain that to someone else? Well, I think those of us who are uh, really actors, we all were told at some point, if you can do anything else, do it. You know, everybody gets told that. And everybody at 17 says, oh, well, I'm going to be fine. Everybody else will struggle, but I'm going to be fine. Um, But I think if you've got the the bug, that's what you are. Mm -hmm. I tried to leave three times in a serious way. Yeah. And um and as recently as 1994 I was at a career counselor trying who uh, someone oh, wow. who had successfully rehabilitated several of my friends from acting and they were all leading wonderful happy lives never looking back. And so I I asked my dad if he would pay for the $4,000 for me to go to this 3-month career counselor and at the end of the three months, she said, I got bad news. You're an actor. <laughs> and, um, and I think she was right. Uh, um, you know, you start what, what happens when you are, when you feel in your soul that you have something to offer and nobody's buying, you start to feel like you're out of your mind. You start to feel like, um, there's something really wrong and you're, you're really and truly in an abusive relationship. If, if it were a woman, everybody would say, you got to get out of there. Mm. That this is bad for you. You're giving everything you have to this relationship and you're not getting anything back. And so you start to feel crazy because you think I'm pretty good. I, I, I think I'm pretty good, but nobody else seems to get it. There, there's a lot to unpack there and there's a lot of years to unpack in there, but I'm just curious, do you feel like there was anything you wish you had done differently or, or something that you wish you could, you know, go back and tell yourself, you know, look at it this way or approach it this well, way or think about it this way? Now that things have gotten better for me, right. I, I can look, I look back at the 35 years of complete despair and say, well, the, the story unfolded perfectly. It was exactly the way it was meant to be. Sure. I always wanted to be famous. Uh, I, I was desperate to be a movie star. But more than that, I was desperate to be famous for being a great actor. I didn't want to be famous just to be famous, which a lot of people do, and a lot of people are. I couldn't do that. I, I, so there were points along the way that I made very clear decisions about which road to take. For example, 
at early in my career, it was 1978, I was doing a, a, a play at the public dramatic adaptation of The Master and Margarita. And I was playing Yvonne Homeless. And it was a very imperfect production. No question. But it was a great part. And it was a serious part. And it was a, a deep part. At that same time, I had a callback for the TV version of Animal House. And I had read for the movie of Animal House, didn't get it. And the callback was on the day that we had tech for Master Margarita. And so I said to my agents, I'm not going to go on the callback because I'm doing this thing. And they went wild. So many phone calls from higher and higher up. And finally, the, one of the head of the agencies called me and who I never spoke to. Mm-hmm. And she said, I'm wondering if there isn't a little will to fail here. Hmm. And I said, Oh, I have way more reason to be afraid of success starring in a play at the public theater than I do in the TV version of Animal House. So I was very clear. And then Animal House came on and it was off after six episodes. It was an enormous flop. So, and Master and Margarita didn't do well either and, and was ultimately an incredibly painful experience. But, uh, you know, if I wanted to just be famous, I would have said, I'm skipping tech and going to be in Animal House. Okay. So let's, let's track up to that point. So you, you decide as a young kid, you want to, you know, be an actor. And then one of the other reasons I'm excited, I was excited to talk to you, Reed, as I was doing my research, you were somebody who was class president for two years. Yep. Um, yep. I ran four years in high school for class president and lost four years. So I was like, I was like, <laughs> here I get to talk to somebody who actually, actually, you know, reached the mountaintop. Um, <laughs> but of course it's another kind of like, there's another kind of performance element to, you know, running for some kind of, you know, office, even in high school. But you were, were you involved in, you know, theater and doing plays and? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I did plays anytime I could. Um, the first play I really consider my having done was Pinocchio in the fifth grade where I was Pinocchio and, and I consider it the beginning of the career because it was the first play I did at night (laughs) and it was the all school musical. I had convinced the music teacher to do a musical because they were doing them in the high school. And I said, you got to do a musical. You got to do music man and I'll be Harold Hill. Well, she didn't do that. She did Pinocchio. She made me audition and there were other people auditioning, but I got it. And, you know, uh, I remember that was in May. It was May 19th, 1965. Uh, just so you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember that summer overhearing my mother say to some people at the community pool, I read was Pinocchio and I think he expected Hollywood to call. And I was so embarrassed because I actually did expect Hollywood to come. <laughs> um, and they didn't. But, um, I did all, all the plays in junior high and all the plays in high school. I think the running for president was probably, uh, very tied into the need to be famous. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted to be the star in the high school and, and, uh, I wasn't going to be the quarterback of the football team. Right. But, um, you know, being in the plays and, and, uh, were you able to keep a lot of your campaign promises? I don't even think there were any <laughs> campaign promises. I can't even imagine what I promised them. 
lemonade in the water fountain? I, yeah, I, yeah, really. I don't know <laughs> what I would have promised. <laughs> it's a long time ago. Okay. Um, I'm still friendly with the girl I ran against, though. She lives five blocks from me in New York. Next time I see her, I think I'm going to ask her, was it a nasty campaign? Right, yeah. <laughs> so you ended up at uh, Boston University. And so what was right. the what was the decision process to get there? Well, I I applied to Carnegie, Juilliard, and BU. And Carnegie had no interest in me at all. In fact, at my interview after my day of auditioning, they said, have you considered SUNY Purchase? Which was not a good sign. But I got into Juilliard oh. and, um, and BU, and I didn't go to Juilliard. I think it was and maybe remains the hardest decision I ever made. And there was never... There was no one to talk to about it because mm. it was, uh, you know, my folks had no sense of what that meant and nobody at school. Meant. And I, I think I decided not to go to Juilliard because I wanted to have some kind of college experience. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, even if I never go to a football game, I want to go someplace where there's real college. And I thought Juilliard... 10, 12 hours of acting a day, I thought would make me hate it. Mm. And I think it would have, honestly. Um, I, I would have been in that class, I believe, that Christopher Reeve and Robin Williams and Bill Hurt were in. That really fancy early sure, class, yeah. I th- think was going to be my class. And then I, so I went to BU and I lived in a dorm and I, the second year I lived in a house with five other guys and had that experience. And by the end of sophomore year, I said, I'm good. I got, (laughs) I got the college thing. I got to get out of here. And I thought about reapplying to Juilliard to get back, get into New York and they were going to make me audition again. And I thought, Ooh, what are the odds of lightning striking twice? Mm -hmm. So I, I dropped out and came down. And I went to circle in the square. One day, sophomore year, I was in the hallway and, and an upperclassman came up to me and said, you know, they're doing a musical version of Look Homeward Angel in New York on Broadway next year. You should play Eugene. And I didn't know anything about Look Homeward Angel. I knew the title, but I didn't know. I was like, oh, okay. That sounds great. So, um, I can't believe I did all of this, but I, I wrote, it was going to be produced at Circle in the Square when they were still producing plays. And so Francis Sternhagen was a family friend of mine, of ours. And so I wrote Franny and I said, can you get me an audition for Look Humbert Angel? And she did. She wrote Ted Mann. And I don't know what she said, but anyhow, next thing I know, I have an audition for Look Humbert Angel. So I sneak out of college one day, take the train down to New York and audition at Ted Mann's apartment for the composer and the lyricist. Hmm. And I think it went fine. They were very nice. And I don't imagine they had any interest in me beyond that. But whatever I walked out of the room with was encouraging enough that I was now determined that I was going to play Eugene. So that was part of the decision to drop out of BU. And go to circle in the square. Cause I thought, well, I'll, I'll be there mm-hmm. when it happens. Right, right. Oh, yo, yo. So, um, I get into circle in the square and I believe the first day of school at circle in the square, there's an announcement in the paper that 
Look Homer and Angel has been postponed, and they're going to produce Where's Charlie instead with Raul Julia. Oh, wow. Oh, dear. So I think, well, that's no good. About three months later, I got my equity card doing children's theater and dropped out of BU. And at this point, I had become completely obsessed with Thomas Wolfe and Look Over Angel. I was reading everything he wrote. I read all the books. And uh, on this children's theater tour, I we were close to Asheville, North Carolina. And I, on a day off, I took a bus to Asheville and spent the night sleeping on the porch of the boarding house. And all the while writing letters to the composer of the show. Mm-hmm. Wow. And these were, you know, deeply passionate, profound letters about why I am Eugene and why this has to happen. And, and I think there was a point where if they had done the play and not cast me, I would have killed myself. I was so, wow. I had transferred so deeply yeah. to this thing. So luckily for me, the thing was postponed. And in the summer of 76, I heard that they were going to do it again in the fall of 76 at a dinner theater out on Long Island. So I wrote, I had calmed down a great deal by this point. And I wrote to the composer one more time and I said, look, I'm fine now. I'm not a man. <laughs> but I, I have, if you need somebody, I would still love to participate. So he called me up. This was the summer of 76. This was, he called me up and said, listen, we're going to be doing backers auditions for the show all summer. Would you like to do the backers auditions? I said, sure. So we must have done 15 or 20 backers auditions that summer, um, for stars and for producer money types. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I got to sing the role and everybody else in it was, cast and i thought well this is good for me i sure. mean what they never told me is that don scardino who they wanted didn't want to do the backers auditions uh, okay so um in the fall of 76 i got cast in a showcase that was the second show at playwrights horizons ever in that space on 42nd street. And it was going to be six performances. It was a play called Gemini. And I remember going into rehearsal and they were in rehearsal for look home and angel out on at the dinner theater. And I remember going into rehearsal for Gemini sobbing saying, I'm in this stupid showcase Hmm. and they're doing this Broadway bound show. And everybody I love is in it. And they lied to me and blah, 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 blah. Well, Gemini, at our very last performance at Playwrights, a producer from Huntington, Long Island came. He had lost a play. It was at the PATH Playhouse, Performing Arts Foundation, a man named Jay Broad. And he'd lost a play. And he picked us up to move instantly out to Long Island to do a, a legitimate run of the show. And the very last performance out at the PATH Playhouse Marshall Mason and Lanford Wilson came because they had lost a play at Circle Rep. Wow. And so they saw us and they moved us in to Circle Rep where we were this enormous hit. Yeah. And after two months, we moved to Broadway and the play ran four years. Wow. I did it for two of those four years. The one year anniversary 
of Gemini opening on Broadway, we had a huge party in Schubert Alley, a big spaghetti dinner because it was about right. Italian-Americans. And, you know, all the Broadway shows came and Liza Minnelli was there because she was doing the act down the street and all this stuff. And it happened to be that that was opening night of Look Homeward Angel across the street from Gemini. Hmm. So we had this huge one-year party, big hit, blah, blah, blah. After the night show, I went to the opening night party of Look Homeward Angel and was in the room when they did that thing that they don't do anymore where they bring in all the newspapers and read the reviews. Oh, sure, yeah, yeah. And the reviews were terrible, and the party folded instantly. Hmm. And, you know, there I was patting everybody on the back. I'm in this big hit and their place closed in a week. Wow. So that was the first big lesson that I've had to learn many, many times about you just never, ever know what your road is. Well, and, and also just how, I mean, at least how you describe it, how fortuitous you know, the path of Gemini was that there was not, you oh, know, yeah. from the beginning, this big, you know, plan of, okay, we're taking this to Broadway, you know, that it just, it just happened this way. It just happened. And, you know, humans was interestingly a very similar thing. We were just going to be a three month off Broadway play and we moved completely ironically and coincidentally and amazingly to the very same theater that Gemini had played in hmm. the Helen Hayes. Wow. Um, opening night of Gemini, I was 22. I got there early and sat on the edge of the stage and thought, well, here we go. I'm 22. I'm in a Broadway show. This could be the start of something big. I didn't do a Broadway show for 35 years. Wow. The next one was Picnic, yeah. 2013. So opening night of The Humans on Broadway, I got there early and sat in the same exact spot. And I was like, well, here I am. I'm 61. Um didn't really work out the way I thought it would, but it's worked out fine. Yeah. It's been, it's been a, uh, a hard road, but it's also been an amazing road. Yeah. But I mean, if you saw that in a movie, you'd say, now come on, it's too much. <laughs> well, I guess it depends on which studio is producing that movie, but, uh, <laughs> but, um, talking about, I mean, well, I guess we could go back to the training a little bit. You trained at Circle in the Square, and then you took these free classes. It was at the Television Academy of Arts and Sciences, right? Or right. National Academy? I got in that about the second week I was, um, second or third week I was in New York, and that met, met once a week. Um, a fellow I knew asked me to audition with him so he could get in. I got in and he didn't. <laughs> um, and I was in that workshop for about, oh, I would say almost 10 years. Wow. Um, and it was Sigourney Weaver was in that class. She had just moved to New York and Mercedes rule mm-hmm, mm-hmm. was in that class. And it was a, it was, I give that class credit for really everything I know as an actor. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was going to be my, one of my questions is what, what do you feel like you, you took away, but you know, you're saying your, your technique, like really what you, what you do. Well, there were two teachers in the course of those 10 years. The first one when I got in was a, a fellow named Tad Danielewski. Um, and he had been a, a Polish resistance fighter during World War II. And he was a very enigmatic and sort of elfish, elfin man with a very genteel Polish accent. And he was quite brilliant, but he, and his approach to the work was very technical. 
and we did lots of technical exercises. Very little actor's studio stuff, sense memory or any mm -hmm. of that stuff. And then after a couple of years, two or three years, he left and went to teach at Brigham Young University. And we replaced him with a man named Gene Lasco. And he was from the actor's studio, not really 100% subscribing to the method, but certainly that was his foundation. But he talked about craft too and about how you do a show eight times a week. And, and I think the combination of two, these two men really gave me um, my aesthetic. What I came away with was, and this was from Gene, was always tell the truth, but in the most interesting way possible. Hmm. Um, so, you know, the range of human experience and expression is vast. And so there are many ways to react to a situation and still have it be utterly and deeply truthful. And so that's sort of the, the thing that is the basis of my teaching, too, is that, you know, your imagination is your great, great friend. It's all pretend. Mm -hmm. Let's not get any more confused about it. It's really all just pretend. Right. And it's, it's, as, it's as simple as playing in the sandbox when you're five. And when you're five and you're playing in the sandbox, you are the king of England, you never for a minute believe you're the king of England, but you're fully committed to being the king of England. Right. And your imagination is working at 110%. There's no self-consciousness. You just are in the moment. And then your sister jumps in and says, there's a monster coming. You don't need five minutes to figure out how to respond to that. You just go with it. The monster's coming. So what do right. you do? Right. So for me, the idea of an hour and a half yoga warm up and sense memory and blah, 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 blah. I don't quite get it. I, cause you don't need to prepare to get in the sandbox. You just get in the sandbox. Now, as grown ups, we all have developed armor and self consciousness and people have told us to stop showing off or to shut up or be quiet or whatever. And so, so we don't have perhaps the freedom that we had at five in the sandbox, but that's all it is. And so whatever you need, if you need an hour and a half yoga warm up to be able to get back to the place where you could play in the sandbox, then by all means do that. But I think it's just a, a decision that you make. You just do it. It's not complicated. It it also sounds certainly like more akin to improv, and uh, that, that you just well, it's yes. I think that that the thing that improv classes teach people is you know really being alive in the moment and responding spontaneously and all that stuff, which is of course essential. I've I, the uh, what is a Sanford Meisner thing that the, the repetitions has been explained to me four million times, and I've never ever understood. It even in a little way, mm -hmm. um, but I I do get that that's supposed to have you be very in the moment and responding. But I, it's you just got to get rid of the self consciousness. Right, easier said than done. Sure, of course. But that's 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 the thing that keeps you. And when you see bad acting, it's because the fear and the self consciousness is more present than the 
living and the being. Mm. Yeah, that there's some kind of guard or mask still yeah, present. Yeah, you're very aware that you're being watched, and so you're uncomfortable. Or you're watching yourself. You, that's also very bad acting. You know, you can have a fearless actor who is completely uh, unpersuasive, and that's what we call a ham bone. Mm-hmm. Because they are so aware of what they're doing and this, like, get a load of me. Right. I'm going to now jump on the couch and you're going to think that's amazing because <laughs> you don't ever get to jump on the couch <laughs> and I get to jump on the couch in the play. So that's good acting. Uh, I, I would much rather see the person who wants to jump on the couch and can't jump on the couch because right. in real life we don't jump on couches. Sure. Yeah. Not, well, most of us don't, yeah. Uh, Most of us don't, unless you're <laughs> mentally ill, and then, yeah. then you jump upon couches. You were studying there for about 10 years, you said, and so this was, you were doing Gemini during this time, during this period? Yes, I did Gemini, and um, that was, uh, I think I left there when I was 23 or 24 to go do the Master and Margarita down at the Public, and then that was not a success. I went to California for the first time right after that. Um, the fellow uh, who had been in Gemini with me, Bob Picardo, had left Gemini to do a play with Jack Lemmon called Tribute oh, okay. on Broadway. And they were taking that out to do in Los Angeles. And so I thought, well, there's Bob's going. I'll go with him and I'll have a roommate. And that'll be a, a, a good way into Los Angeles. And I lasted five months. It's the longest I've ever been in Los Angeles, five months of being out there on spec and very quickly got that it wasn't my town, that Mm. what I had to offer was not of any real interest out there. I find that, um, that they're very threatened by a New York actor. Mm. They think you're going to be trouble. You're going to ask questions and you're going to, you know, just be a pain in the ass. And if you stay longer than a couple of weeks, then you're just a transplanted New York actor like everybody is out there. And then you sort of lose your, your patina of New York intimidation. So I came back to New York and about six months later through Gene and, and acting class, I got, um, cast in Arthur Penn's movie, Four Friends which uh, was Steve Tesich's first movie after his Oscar for Breaking Away. Oh, okay. And so it was a, uh, it followed three guys and a girl from Illinois outside of Chicago uh, through the 60s. And my part was the lead guy's college roommate. So if we, if it were a three act play, I was the second act. Mm-hmm. And I was a rich kid with multiple sclerosis and I, um, it was a very much of a Tiny Tim kind of character. Got it. Anyhow, it was uh, thrilling to do. It was the summer of 80. And, um, you know, I couldn't imagine uh, a more exciting film debut. I loved everybody. I'm still in touch with everybody who was in the movie with me. And Lois Smith played my mother. Um, James Leo Hurley, who wrote... The book of Midnight Cowboy mm. played my father. Um, so everything about it was amazing. And then the movie opened a year later and failed. And 
that was sort of the beginning of the really bad time. I signed with Sam Cohn at ICM, who was the king of agents at the time. He was Meryl Streep's agent and Woody Allen's and Arthur Penn's and Mike Nichols and everybody's agent. And I literally had, I didn't work for that entire year that I was with him. Mm. So the movie came and went. As soon as the movie opened, every agent in America called me up and said, we'd love to work with you. And I said, well, I've just signed with Sam Cohn. And they said, oh, well, we, we can't compete with that. And then after a year of nothing, I, I only had one audition that entire year. I called a lot of these people back and they said, the moment has passed. Hmm. So I think I, I gambled and I lost. If the movie had been a hit, being at ICM with Sam Cohn would have been absolutely the right place to be because he would have helped me field offers. But because the movie failed and there were no offers, he was not someone who was going to beat the bushes and find work for me. Right. So any momentum I might have gotten for four friends disappeared. Well, so so being part of, of such a big production uh, with Gemini and then being part of, of something that had a lot of potential with, with four friends, you know, looking back, do you wish you had done anything differently with those two projects, like staying longer with Gemini or leaving earlier or? Well, I stayed, I stayed with Gemini, um, longer than almost anybody because I couldn't get another job. And it was very, very hard, mm. um, because it was such a, you know, people were winning prizes and being whisked away to make movies. And my character's leading characteristic was that he was ordinary. And, uh, you know, that, was I, I was the least flashy part in a play full of flashy parts. Right. And so I was not going to be singled out. Um, so that was actually very, very difficult to stay with Gemini as long as I did. I finally got the Master and Margarita and was able to leave. The mistake I made was going with Sam before, with Sam Cohn, before Four Friends opened. I should have been patient and let the movie open and seen what the movie generated for me and then had discussions with these various agents who called and maybe found somebody who was able to sort of capitalize on whatever four friends might have done for me. But by going with the big agency, I really squandered that opportunity. Well, I mean, I think it brings up an interesting point that you, that you referenced earlier that a lot of times it feels like you don't know who you would consult about these things, about these topics. Exactly. Um, it's a, it can be very daunting. It's daunting when you're unsuccessful and it's daunting when you're successful. And I think that's one reason why people have managers and, uh, you know, that there's, there's another voice to talk to. Right. About it. But at that point, I certainly, my, my agents, um, were not useful. They, uh, the the people I got, as I said, I got four friends sort of on my own. Mm -hmm. So they negotiated for me, but they weren't at uh, sort of on top with it at all. At one point, they called me up and said, you have an audition for the man who came to dinner at the Alaska Rep. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, for December, right when Four Friends was opening. And I said, I'm not going to Alaska. When Four Friends is opening, they had not been tracking it at all. Right. 
It reminds me of that that anecdote you you shared when I saw you in L.A. of here you are doing the humans in L.A. and you were were you at the equity office and someone's like oh you're doing a play oh, in town one of the uh, one of the other actors was at the equity office oh okay and, <laughs> yeah and they said um, what are you here for and he said well we're doing a play at the um, and said what play the humans the humans I'm gonna have to write that down <laughs> it's like oh. Okay. Yeah. The equity office. Right. And these people that are in the industry and certainly at your time, the agents are, it's like, are you, are we on the same, are we on the same planet? Like what, what's going Uh, on? Right. I'm about to open in a major motion picture and you're sending me (laughs) to Alaska in December. Right, right, right. Yeah, because Alaska is wonderful in the summer, but uh, very different in, yeah. in, in December. Yeah. So, well, one of the projects I that caught my eye, you know, it was after Four Friends, I imagine, was the movie Crime Wave. Yes. And what what really interested me about this project, I mean, you know, you watch the trailer and you're like, okay, wow, this is really a, a campy, like, you know, uh, 80s movie. Um, but it is written by Joel and Ethan Cohen. Yeah. Uh, and directed by Sam Raimi. And, yep. you know, this was, just, I think, right at the, well, I mean, maybe not right at the start, but it, it was definitely like their careers were, I think, starting to get underway, all of them. Well, it was Sam's first movie after The Evil Dead. Right, okay. And I think, uh, I think Joel and Ethan had filmed Blood Simple, but it hadn't come out yet. Okay, okay. So it was very early days. Yeah, and so, did you take anything away specifically from, you know, the all, you know, all three of those guys went on to, you know, have very big careers. Did you, do you feel like you took anything away from that working process or was it very collaborative? Was it? Well, it, it, it was an interesting, uh, whole, the whole story of it is, is kind of amazing. And I'll, I'll tell you somebody else had been cast. Sam wanted Bruce Campbell, yep. of course, because okay. he was their friend. Yep. And the studio embassy wouldn't let them use Bruce. And to this day, chat rooms uh, are on fire <laughs> at the outrage that they cast me instead of Bruce. Uh, it's unbelievable. When there used to be the the message boards on IMDb, right? Uh, pages and pages of people. Who the hell is Reed Bernie? Why didn't Bruce get to play this part? Blah, blah, blah. Anyway, somebody else other than Bruce had been cast in the part. And he uh, went over the day after he got cast to the casting lady's uh, house in Venice beach to take a bottle of champagne to celebrate and walked in, in the middle of a huge fight between the casting lady and her boyfriend and tried to break up the fight. And the boyfriend hit him in the face and broke his cheekbone. Wow. So he was out. So they needed somebody fast. And Barbara Clayman was the New York casting she called me up one night. I had been out and I got home and there was a message. Can you fly to Detroit tomorrow to audition for this movie? And I said, well, Barbara, what's the movie? And she said, it's called the XYZ murders. I said, what is that? And she said, well, it's by this guy, Sam Raimi. He's just had a big hit with a movie called evil dead. And I said, Oh, Barbara, this sounds terrible. (laughs) And she said, Reed, it's a lead in a movie. And I said, what time do you want to pick me up? <laughs> so I flew out the next day, read for Sam. He cast me that day. I flew home, packed my bag, and flew back out for three months to film the thing. Now, there was all kinds of drama going on that I was mostly unaware of. I think the budget got cut in half halfway through the filming. There were, there was a huge fight sequence in a subway 
that was supposed to happen that got cut and ended up being a fight on a bridge. That fight that was cut, by the way, ended up in Spider-Man 2. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was when I saw that on a plane. I'm like, oh, that's that <laughs> fight we were going to do in Crime Wave. It, it was a very nice time. I, I loved doing it. I loved Sam. Um, the Cone brothers weren't around much. Mm-hmm. I don't think they were around in Detroit at all when we were filming it. But it was a happy time, and and at one point, Sam, it was a night shoot. We were shooting something, sitting around, waiting for them to set up something, and Sam said, Reed, any movie I make, there's a part for you. Well, if you check IMDb, it's the last time I worked (laughs) with Sam. What happened was the movie, the studio took the movie away from them. Sam worked on a cut for a year, and then Embassy took it away and recut it. And a year later made us all gather again for reshoots. Wow. A sort of weird framing device. And then Embassy went out of business and Orion picked it up or somebody else picked it up. So both the Cone brothers and Sam have completely disowned the movie, which of course is sad because it's the one movie of theirs I'm the star of. Right. And I, I've never seen them again. And you know, when the Blu-ray of Crime Wave came out, a couple of years ago, Bruce did the commentary and it was before my career sort of came back. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's like, yeah, I don't know why Reed didn't have a movie career. You know, he's doing a lot of plays in New York now, but it really sounded like I was one of those guys that faded away. Which is interesting because, you know, you were, you were very busy in New York, you know, over, over the last, you know, several decades, uh, you well, know, doing this was, theater. we did the, we did the Blu-ray came out in 2012. I didn't, I think I had just done Picnic. Right. When I did my, I did a little supplement bonus feature for it. So, um, Blast it had happened and things were starting to, to, to get better, but certainly, you know, nowhere near like, you know, House of Cards happened after right. that, and well, uh, I mean, because because I know you talk about you know the the thirty five year period, and, and of course you very famously mention it in your Tony acceptance speech um, that there felt like a lack of traction, and yeah. and you mentioned earlier that you know when you feel like you're what you're selling, nobody's interested in. Um, That's right, and you know during this period you were still doing a lot of off Broadway uh, plays and, and things like that, but it right. was like how. I guess the question is, how did you keep your kind of your sanity and your drive and your passion when you weren't working or even auditioning and you weren't doing the work that you maybe felt you were ready for? Well, I, I, I think if you were to speak to my longtime friends, they would say that perhaps I didn't keep my sanity. Hmm. Um, and I remember in 1985, I was still dealing with the failure of four friends and crime wave. I'd made crime wave, but it hadn't come out. It was now two years later. Um, and I felt like show business was literally killing me. I felt like I was dying inside. I was so full of rage. I couldn't be with anybody without going into a terrible rant about how angry I was. Mm. And so I was walking up Broadway and I, uh, a little voice said to me, like, I'm talking to you, take a trip around the world. And 
my grandmother had died and left me some money. And I, I went home and I said to the woman I was living with that day, I said, if nothing happens for me in six months, I'm going to leave. I'm going to take off and leave for a year. And the point of the year was to do all of the things that I had always wanted to do that I never let myself do because I was in this abusive relationship with show business. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, so I did six months later, nothing had happened. And so in December of, of 85, I moved to Paris wow. for five months and then took off with a backpack and went to, um, I bummed around Greece for a while. And then I went to Africa to, uh, Zimbabwe and Kenya and then, uh, Bali and then Australia. Oh my and I God. came home a year to the day after I, after I'd left. It sounds so, like it must um, have been an amazing it was, trip. Yeah. It was an amazing trip and, and still one of my proudest accomplishments and changed me in a big way. But so that was 86. I got back in December mm -hmm. of 86. By 94, as I told you, I was back at the career counselor. <laughs> right. Trying to get out again. So, of course, it's very easy in the moment when things are not going well to feel like it's personal or there's there's something wrong with me or, or, or you know, whatever I'm, you know, quote unquote, selling as an actor. And being able to look back with with time and perspective now, do you see those years differently in terms of, well, you know, I mean, you mentioned the rage you had or, or the anger you had, you know, towards the business, the abusiveness. Do you see do, are you able to frame it differently now? Well, as I said, I can, you know, because things are going better, I can look back and say it all unfolded perfectly. Right. Um, I did have, having been gone through the Tony Award season twice now. Right. As a nominee. Um, I, especially the year I won, uh, I remember turning to someone and saying, you know what? I think it's probably a pretty good thing I didn't get famous in my twenties. Because I'm struggling handling this now. Right. In my sixties. And I certainly have a much better overview of what it all means and how it all works and all that kind of stuff. And it still was hard. So on some level, you know, look, we'll never know what it would have been like. Sure. Had I connected that way. If four moment. friends had become this explosive, you know, yes, if four no. friends had been diner or right, right. Something like that, you know, um, you, you would have been in back to the future. I would have been in back to the future. I mean, there were so many things right. I would have been in. Right. Right. Um, and when I'm at my most sane about it all, I'm able to say the universe really was taking care of me along the way. And I am able to see that I have perhaps always been exactly where I needed to be. Now, I wish I wasn't in despair right. for most of my 20s and 30s and 40s. Um, that's a goddamn shame that I yeah. spent all that time being so sad. It didn't change one thing. Mm -hmm. It didn't certainly help me. And if anything, it probably hurt me. I tell my students that they're full-time job is to not let them win that you've got to at least stay at zero because if you walk in in the dark place 
they can see that you're talented, but they can smell that darkness and they're like, that's, there's something dangerous there that I don't want to go near. Right, right. I wish I hadn't been sad all that time. But I was, and, you know, who knows, maybe that helped make me a better actor. Maybe it taught me something about the human condition that I wouldn't have known if I had been successful at 25. Right. Yeah. I mean, like you said, there's so many different questions and what ifs you could, you can pose. But of course, that journey was necessary for you to be in this place that you are today. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And, and, you know, the success has really only been in the last 10 years where people are, are actually acknowledging my work in the way that I always wanted them to. It's relatively new, this feeling of being appreciated right. and of value. Um, and so, uh, you know, the DNA is still pretty junkyard dog. I, you know, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I expect to be treated badly because I have been for so long. So it's mm. always, it still sort of shocks me when people are nice. Well, I wanted to actually jump to, you know, some of the, you know, quote unquote, better years and, and talk to you about some of those projects and, and how you worked on them. Um, the first one uh, I wanted to touch on was uh, Casa Valentina. Uh-huh. And how did that come into your life? I mean, it's a very I mean, it's a very different part from uh, a lot of what you had played. It's a very interesting story, first of all. Um, yeah. But yeah. So how did how did that come into your life? Well, I was in Boston doing All the Way with Brian Cranston. Okay. Um, playing Hubert Humphrey. And that was coming to New York. And I wasn't, uh, feeling very happy, uh, playing Humphrey. It wasn't a terribly satisfying part. Just a little, to go back a little bit, the, the play I did before Blasted was a play at Manhattan Theater Club in which I had seven lines. And I only did it because things weren't good. And I, it was a play at Manhattan theater club. And I thought, well, that's uptown and that that'll be good for my career. But the part wasn't that interesting. And I, I, in the middle of it, it the play was not successful. And I, I thought, okay, Reed, look, you, the dream's not going to come true. You're not, you're 54 years old. You're not going to be a movie star. You're not even going to be anything. You're just going to be a schmuck actor now for the rest of your life. So, the rule has to be, is it a part I want to play? I can't start thinking anymore, is this going to be good for my career? Right. Because it's over. You know, I'm an older guy. And if it hasn't happened by now, there's no reason to think it, it will. And then Blasted came up and, and, um, you know, that was an amazing part for 77 seats. Mm. for three weeks and you know and and terrifying and i yeah. almost turned it down and then i thought it's too if it scares me this much i have to say yes how can i ever complain about my career again <laughs> if i turn something down because it scared me right so and then of course it turned into this thing certainly not something but, you would get um, bored bored by like uh you know in other parts if it, terrif yeah, yeah, if it yeah. terrifies you that much you're probably not going to be bored by it i'm not going to be bored and and if I saw somebody else do it, I'd be like, that's an amazing part. I would never have said, why didn't they cast me? Right. Cause right. I wouldn't, it would never have occurred to me to play that part. But, yeah. um, 
So Casa Valentina was just an audition. It was Manhattan Theater Club, which was surprising because I had never really been auditioning for for them. Mm-hmm. But Joe Mantello, I think it must have come from Joe because he had been to see Circle Mirror Transformation and loved it. And so I think he was, um, uh, even though I'd known him socially a little bit over the years, I'd never worked with him, but I think he was perhaps aware of me in a way he wouldn't have been before. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think he must have called me in. And uh, I put myself on tape in my apartment in Cambridge with my phone. Oh, wow. And um, the mandate was don't worry about lipstick or makeup or wigs or anything. Just do the monologue. Fortunately, it was a monologue, and so I didn't have to have anybody off camera Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. reading with me. And I filmed a couple of takes and felt pretty good about it and sent it in. And then word came back that they were really interested. And um, Joe wrote me a, a beautiful email about it. And next thing I knew, I got it. And I was able to not have to do all the way in New York. Hmm. And it was absolutely, for your listeners who, who don't know what it was, it, it was yeah. a Harvey Firestein play about a real-life Catskill resort in 1962 where straight men went to dress as women. So they were transvestites. They weren't interested in being women or becoming women or anything more than just wearing women's clothing. Right Now, because it was 1962, there probably were some people there who were would have been transgender today. In fact, when we were rehearsing, there was an 80-year-old woman from Australia who came to sort of be our technical advisor who had literally been at Casa Susanna the weekend that the play took place. Wow. She was there for the event of the play, um, which was amazing. And she had been a man and she had since transitioned into a woman. So clearly she was, she was not just a transvestite. Right. Anyhow, I got to play the part of Charlotte, who was sort of the villain. She was based on a real uh, person, Virginia Prince, who had in 1962 been living as a woman, fully dressed as a transvestite, and speaking at our um, uh, VFWs and Rotary Clubs to the members advocating transvestitism, saying, we're just like you guys, except we like to wear women's clothing. Hmm. So in the course of the play, he comes to this resort, which is actually about half an hour from where I am right now, and has started a not-for-profit and wants all the guys to sign up for this not-for-profit. Two things happen. They have to use their real names to sign the not-for-profit, which they're uncomfortable about. And then I make them sign a rider swearing that they're not gay, because if... The VFWs ask, you, are you guys all queer? I will have the affidavits to say, look, they're not. They're just regular guys. Mm. They've got families and they teach and are judges and things. And one of the, the guys are all uncomfortable. And one of the, the guys is actually gay. He's a judge. And I corner him and I say, you've got to make everybody sign this or I'm going to out you. Wow. So I'm, um, I'm, you know, the ends justify the means for Charlotte. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was a fantastic part and something I'd never thought about. I'd never, ever thought about putting on ladies' clothing. 
We had a makeup boot camp two days before rehearsal started where we all got together and tried on wigs and practiced makeup and putting on false eyelashes and stuff. And it was terrifying when they put the bra <laughs> on me. I almost fainted. It was so heady. It was crazy. Really crazy. Yeah. But um, ultimately enormous fun. Well, so with a part like that and a play like that, I, I am curious, you know, what were the, uh, well, you might have alluded to some, but what were some of more of the unexpected challenges and what were the things that were actually easier than you thought they would be? Well, uh, I will say walking in high heels is nuts. And I don't know why <laughs> women didn't burn those in the 70s because bras actually seem to serve a purpose. High heels, I think, are really barbaric. Um Women will say it makes their legs look great and their butts look good, but uh, it is not fun. Yeah. Uh, so I did not enjoy that. <laughs> um, what were the downsides of it? Uh, you know, you had to sort of, or not necessarily the challenge, the downsides, but more the challenge, like the things that you didn't think were, I mean, you know, like you said, the, uh, the wearing the heels, but there are those things where you, you walk into a project like that and you're, you, your mind starts to create like, Oh God, I'm going to have to do this or that. And then it's like, Oh, this actually wasn't well, what it stuff. was. I sort of going back to putting the bra on, you know, we all have our male identities and right. whatever connection we have to our machismo or, uh, you know, all of that stuff. You really had to, in the most profound way, you have to do it anytime you're playing a part. You have to give up what do people think of me. But you really had to give up any sort of worry about people judging you mm -hmm. or thinking things about you. Um, you know, you, the, the, the fear and the self-consciousness were even stronger as you started to go out dressed as a woman. Right. And, you know, these are guys who delight and revel in being a woman and dressing as a woman. So any uncomfortableness would have been completely out of place. Mm. Um, so that was a, a thing, just finding the way to surrender to uh, the female side of you, to, you know, amplify that or and and then as a result it became enormously liberating because you didn't have to think about how am i sitting and you know am i waving my arms around too or too much or you know it's like you could just go ahead and do and so when people said to me they they forgot i was a man i thought that was an amazing compliment yeah wow that it, this transition. And, and I, I will say I felt like a woman, whatever that means. Right. I, I felt like I was no longer Reed. Hmm. Yeah. Thrilling. Now that was another production where you got to work, uh, or, or I imagine to some degree, or at least the playwright, Harvey Firestein was there. Um, what do yeah. you, what do you enjoy about that process? Having the playwright in the room? Well, your sense of collaboration is so much stronger. Mm -hmm. You know, there, there comes a point where you as the actor know the character arguably better than the playwright does. And so you can say, this feels weird. And then you either have the director and the playwright explain why it's not weird or they go, yeah, I get that. 
maybe there's a more elegant solution to whatever it is you're talking about. But I find when the play is, um, the better written the play, the less the playwright has to tinker. Mm. Very little changed in the humans because that, when we went into rehearsal, finally, I had done a reading earlier, a couple of years earlier, so that, that was quite different. But Stephen Karam knew exactly how to fix that and sort of did that over time. And very, I feel like very little changed in Casa Valentina, too. I, certainly very little of my stuff changed. So talking about the, the humans, because I, I remember you saying in another interview, there was... In terms of like really connecting with that character, Eric, there was something about finding his rhythm or his pace. Was that was that? Well, yes. Um, Joe Mantello, our director, said to me, "I I, I was nervous when I was cast because I thought I'm I don't know that I would cast me as a janitor from Scranton. That seems like a stretch, mm-hmm. having played you know so many politicians and aristocratic types." And so we were in rehearsal and Joe had to say to me several times, he said, slow down. He said, when you respond quickly and you move quickly, you seem um, smarter. Hmm. So it was a technical note that ultimately became a psychological note. And it was, it was absolutely right. I, and I, I was moving too, too quickly and responding too quickly. And it was a brilliant note. And when it finally dropped in, um, it really gave me the whole world of the guy. Mm. Now, I mean, it's not on the surface a note where you're saying this character is dumb, but how, how do you, how did you kind of reframe that? Or, or what did that mean to you on a deeper level in terms of, does this, is this a character that just took his time? Well, I maybe, more? maybe intelligent is sure. the wrong word. Yeah. Um, it, it, he seemed, um, I think he's, I think he's less educated perhaps. Okay. Uh, and so that he doesn't have the sort of uh, alacrity of response that, somebody who's thinking all the time. I, you know, I think, I think, um, I think Eric, uh, has lived very head down. Okay. You know, I don't think he has spent a lot of time sort of assessing the world around him in a sophisticated way. Maybe that's what he was saying that you seem more sophisticated than, than intelligent. And I'm curious what has, grown and and changed for you with that with that role over the last you know few years however long it's been well we had a year and a half off from wow. broadway to Lo- to los angeles so that was a, a huge chunk of life yeah. in which we all have been more beaten up or you know we've had the joys and the sorrows and the, all the things right that just happened to you and so um, I think I found, I think all of us found going back to Los Angeles that it got deeper. Hmm. That, um, perhaps my experience of doing it in Los Angeles that the, the Eric's sadness and worry and terror is more, um, present and I had to 
I had to, uh, think about showing it less. Hmm. It just was there and I didn't have to worry about it. It's ironic because the Amundsen was so much larger than any space we'd ever played. And yet I think the performances from all of us were deeper. Mm -hmm. Joe came back and directed us a little bit and, Mm -hmm. and asked us to go deeper with things. You know, at one point I said, well, that's our, that's, that's a great piece of direction, but (laughs) that's not what I did for a year and a half in New York. And he said, it's a living thing, Reed. And, uh, I think that's very true. I think it, you know, it's a, the, the production and the performances are very much a, a living organism. And it does change, you know, from night to night. Sure. But, um, I think in general, the, the Los Angeles production was, um, a, a much deeper thing. Hmm. I'm really excited about London and yeah. in a 350 seat theater, just seeing what, what that's going to feel like. Yeah, very, very, uh, I, I think that will be, uh, a lot of fun. Um, I just have a, you know, maybe a handful of a few more questions, uh, if you have a few more minutes. I was curious when I was, uh, I was watching actually clips on your, on your site and, uh, the episode from House of Cards, the quarantine episode. Um, right. it, it almost seemed like a, a two character play of, I mean, I know, yeah. like, you know, you and Kevin are in that one room and there are other things going on, but, I'm curious, was there a lot of rehearsal that went into, you know, that portion of the episode? I mean, obviously Kevin is, has a long theater history too. Um, yeah, I'm just curious how you guys worked on that. No, there, there was actually no rehearsal. Uh, it took, it took four days to film that, that storyline in that episode. Um, and, uh, it, we just shot it like any, any other, Hmm. television thing that I have ever been a part of where you, you know, you run it once for the director and once for the crew and then you film it. Wow. So, uh, I'm, I'm always astonished when people are good in film and television because it just feels so, um, underdone to me, Mm. unfinished. Right. Um, you know, I guess it's comparable to if you're in an art class where they give you a, bold stroke exercise where you're just like, you've got 10 minutes to come up with something sure, and it forces you to make decisions and move fast. And there's, there is value in that for sure. Um, but you know, you look at these things later and you're like, Oh, well, there's so many missed opportunities there. Why didn't I do this? And why didn't I do that? And you know, that's, that's just the nature of the beast with, with film and television. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's very, very interesting. Like how quickly, how quickly it moves. Um, yeah. when, when there's a lot of money on the line. Um, that's right. now I know both of your kids, uh, are acting and yeah. how, how have you tried to prepare and or support both of them when it comes to pursuing acting? Well, you know, it's, it's both joyous and heartbreaking to have a house full of actors. Right. Yeah. Including um, your wife. Right. Yeah. Including my wife. Uh, I think I, I try the best I can by example, but, uh, they certainly have both seen me sad a lot. So one wonders what the appeal could be, but, uh, I think just by, saying to them, you know, you, you know, I didn't get that part I wanted. 
Um, but uh, you know, I, I've 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 had some rough times in the last. Uh, like the beginning of this year was a, an especially rough time professionally for me, and I was struggling pretty hard. And uh, you know, I felt bad because I thought, well, this is not setting a very good example for the kids. But um, but I think it's important for them to see that it's hard. Mm. I think it's not entirely inappropriate to be sad when something sad happens. I think you've got to find a way to pick yourself up quicker, sooner than later right? with it. But, um, you know, if something sad happens, I think it's all right to be sad. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, uh, like we were talking about, you know, that's, that's part of the, the human experience, part of the human, you know, if you, if you weren't ever sad, I, I would suggest there might be something wrong on that front. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I don't know what kind of actor you're going to be if you haven't had your heart broken. Right. Of course. Um, now I did, uh, I asked, uh, listeners for, uh, questions and one of our listeners, James, uh, had some really interesting questions. One was, You've done a lot of different styles between film and theater, you know, working with Annie Baker and Stephen Karam and doing Chekhov and doing Casa Valentina. What he was curious about is, was it your education that prepared you for such a broad range of texts? Meaning what I learned at school? At, yeah, at yeah, yeah, training. Or yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, I don't think so. I think what prepared me or helped me along with all that stuff is that I see what happens when people don't fully commit to whatever they're doing or are, are aren't able or, or somehow or other the style um, flummoxes them. And so I think I say to myself, I make a mental note, don't let that happen to you. You've got this, the requirement of this is different. So you have to, again, not be afraid to fully commit to whatever that is. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's probably more a function of having lived so long and, um, you know, been a student of the theater and life. Right, right. Now, I know you do... You, or you have been, you know, working a lot. Um, how do you balance the work and your personal life? I mean, you know, you have the wife, you have the two kids, you know, there's a lot going on. Uh, I know you yeah. said you have uh, four or five cats, uh, you know, to, uh, to take care of. <laughs> My wife does. Okay. All right. Um, yeah. Um, you know, I think it's, I, I, I rarely turn big stuff down. Um, uh, I think if there's a job, unless it's really just a joke, I'm interested in doing it. And I've been lucky that the stuff that has, has come my way has mostly been really interesting, uh, and challenging. Having said that, I have missed an awful lot of my children's growing up and, um, my life at home. And, uh, so how do I balance it? I don't know. I'm not sure I actually have particularly. Um, but I, I am lucky that I have a family because they are all actors. They get it mm -hmm. and they are, um, thrilled at the opportunities that have come my way. 
One one final question I have is, uh, you know, thinking about your dad as uh, a minister um, and, you know, all, all, the thing, all the texts that, you know, he was probably reading and, and going through. Are there any quotes that you think of often or that you try to live your life by? Oh, boy. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. Um, I think especially now that the world is so crazy. Uh, I think about, you know, what can I do? What, what, what kind of difference can I make? I think often about that old maxim, brighten the corner where you are. Hmm. And, and even as far as my career goes, since I'm mostly a theater guy and I, and, you know, I, I don't feel like I have a, a very large profile nationally or internationally there are more people don't know who i am than do obviously but then in terms of brightening the corner where i am i think i'm doing a play for 77 people that's making a difference in each of our lives the fact that we are coming together the 78 of us and having this experience that makes what i do of value. That's really beautiful. And Reed, this has been uh, a really, really great conversation. So thank you so much for being so uh, open and generous with your time. Well, it's really fun to do. But thank you. Thank you again so much. Thanks, Nathan. Okie doke. Bye-bye. Hey guys, Nathan here one more time. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe so you don't miss anything ahead. Be sure to visit WorkingActorsJourney.com for additional info and links for items mentioned in today's episode as well as all the episodes. You can follow the show on Facebook and we're on Twitter and Instagram at Working underscore Actors. Become a premium member and enjoy additional benefits and perks of the show starting at just $2 per month. Head over to workingactorsjourney.com slash premium to join the Working Actors community. And don't forget to claim your free audiobook at workingactorsjourney.com slash audible. Thank you to today's guest and to everyone that makes these episodes possible. And a special thanks to you for listening. I'm Nathan Agan, and enjoy the journey.